High School Slumber Party AP is a Cage Club Podcast Network production. For all things Cage Club and High School Slumber Party, head over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome slumbers who take their studies a little more seriously. I'm Brian Rodriguez. And I'm Aislin Addington. And this is High School Slumber Party AP, a study session in contemporary teen films. And your assignment, and again, it was assigned to you on Monday, so I hope you did it, was to watch 2021's CODA. Uh, but before we get into our conversation today, we have some homework to discuss. Yes, absolutely. What are you using to listen to us right now? Is it Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher? Wherever you're listening, please hit that subscribe button. Or maybe you watched Monday's episode because there is video available for it, or at least of our Zoom call. Yes, indeed. There is a Zoom available if you want to view our conversation with uh, Ryan Gale, uh, a friend of mine from working on college campuses, an amazing activist, performer, educator, um, all around awesome dude who we got to talk to about uh, deaf culture, inclusive arts and entertainment, as well as some of the uh, subject matter from Coda the film. Um, so if you haven't listened to that, if you skipped it because it was not a regular episode, I highly encourage y'all to go back and listen to that interview or um, watch it over Zoom because it was a lot of fun and I think it really helps inform our conversation about CODA that you're going to hear shortly. Yeah, and I posted the link already on our social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, High School Slumber Party, so definitely, definitely check that out um, and we probably shared it on all our other social medias as well. So you, you could easily find it there. And this is part two of our discussion. We're gonna really get into the movie this time. Now, this was recorded before the Oscars, but it's even more relevant now that CODA swept all the Oscars. It was nominated Best Supporting Actor, Troy Coster, Best Adapted Screenplay, Sean Hedder, and the big one, Best picture, which, oh my God, picture. can't believe it. So really, really sincerely hope you did your homework because uh, there'll be spoilers here, but it's a fun conversation. I can't wait for you to listen to it. Anything else you want to say, Island, before we uh, cue the tape of it? Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And um, please let us know what you thought of CODA and um, what you thought of our special interview episode, as well as our CODA conversation in this episode. I mean, once again, big thank you 
uh, to Ryan for coming on, and again, also just to yourself, Island, for uh, setting that up. That was really cool. Definitely feels very AP to have a, a guest speaker of such qualifications. Absolutely, yeah. Not only is it fitting for this episode, also it is just fun to talk to Ryan. So I'm so glad that uh, he could join us. And I'm also excited to talk a little bit more about the movie specifically with you, Brian. We briefly, I should—I say briefly, but actually we spent a pretty good amount of time uh, talking about it on the uh, 2021 year in review. It's true. And we were both, you know, uh, came out strong proponents of CODA during <laughs> that little um, segment there. So now this is kind of that in long form. Um, I watched it again today another emotional journey so um <laughs> let, let's talk about it Iceland, your duty as always is to find that description and read it for the slumbers out there happy to so this um as you said comes to us from apple tv as a coda child of deaf adults ruby is the only hearing person in her home when she discovers a passion for singing ruby must choose between family obligations and her dreams Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award winner at Sundance Film Festival. And a uh, little segue on Apple TV here, or Apple TV Plus, I suppose it's technically called. Oh, you're right. I missed the plus. Oh, I mean, it's not a big deal. I never say the plus. I don't but... give pluses that often, so I just didn't include it. <laughs> Fair enough. It's definitely an outlier in the streaming services. Not that Apple is a underdog by any standard. Obviously, Apple is one of the richest corporations in the history of the rich corporations of the world. So, you know, it's not the little engine that could. But it's not Netflix. It's not even uh, Amazon or Hulu, probably. No, it's really just Ted Lasso. Yeah, I mean, they try. Apple throws a lot of money at a lot of famous people. They had that Super Bowl ad with, like, all the famous people who are on Apple. And, like, that's their thing. Their programming is hit or miss, and often it's miss. Ted Lasso, great, very successful. Uh, we talked Boys State on here, which was another Sundance property that they bought. But when they like something, they will try to bid for it. They have a lot of money. So when they really like something, they more often than not get it. And uh, Coda must have been something they saw at Sundance and just decided to put on their streaming service. Now, there are pros and cons to it, right? Like, it's great that the people who made this film got their movie on a streaming service and probably got a lot of money and now that we're in awards season and the oscars are this sunday apple has been doing a tremendous job of promoting this film i don't know if it was on air or off air that we had discussed how coda has a real chance to win best picture because of one they changed the rules and it's ranked voting from one to ten right and everyone i can't say everyone there are coda haters and we'll discuss it but a lot of people watch this film and feel good at the end of it so it's going to be in in the mix for rankings and apparently the promotion that apple has done for award season has been great it was a long shot just a couple weeks ago now it is uh by most accounts and most betting sites if you're into that i guess it goes second favorite after power of the dog like the power Power of the dog is still the favorite but this film has moved into second place and it's a surprise because I say only, but every Oscar nomination is great for a film, but it only has three nominations, and that would be, I think, the least since some movie in the 30s or 40s uh, to win Best Picture. Usually the one who wins Best Picture is like nominated in every category. And sure. For me, Coda definitely has like more of a indie film 
feel than like a Oscar winner feel, but I'd like to see it win. It's a teen movie. It's a teen movie I liked. And I really heard about it only from the me watching Ted Lasso and it being promoted on okay. Apple TV and uh, just Googling uh, teen films and trying to see what's up. So, Island, what is your history with CODA? When was the first time you saw it and where did you hear about it? So, to set the stage a little bit here, because I chose not to monopolize our time during the interview to talk about this. I have been a Marley Matlin fan, let's just say my whole life. I love Marley Matlin. I have loved Marley Matlin forever. So I first was aware of it because of her social media presence. And I'll be honest, I misunderstood at first. And I thought it was a series when I first saw like a, she had posted a teaser or something for it. And so I was honestly a little bit disappointed when I looked it up to watch the full trailer and realized it was a film only because I thought what a great premise for a series. Yeah. And I just wanted more. Yeah. So that's how I first learned about it. And in part, my love of Marley Matlin is because she's a fantastic actress and I think um, a great activist. And I went to a preschool that was for hearing and deaf children. So everything was signed in preschool. I had an early set of experiences with sign language. And then I did... um, sign language interpretation for music for my senior project in high school. And then sign was the foreign language I took in college. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely, when I saw the trailer for Coda, I thought, Ooh, yes, I would like to watch this movie. Like I have just shared, I've had some overlap with sign language and a little bit of education and deaf culture. And I know enough to know that I know very little. And so I thought to myself, I hope this movie is good because I think this is an area and this is a culture or a subculture, I suppose, that does not get a lot of representation. And so I hoped it was good. And then I was delighted to think personally it was good. And then to hear that award season wise, you know, that's a different set of metrics for good or not, but I'm both personally satisfied and like happy that it's getting some recognition. Likewise, it's it's interesting because the haters of this film yeah, tell me more about that. Well, they've called it like a glorified lifetime film. I think they're upset that it's largely positive. Mm. We even, not that it, it was nominated, I wanted it to be nominated last year, but uh, we refer back to a lot, never early, sometimes always. Yeah. Great movie, but you don't really feel great after watching the movie, you know? Yeah. But a lot of Oscar stuff tends to skew that way. It could be very sad and tragic or just pulling at different kind of strings, you know? Or is it is the argument that, like, not enough happens or, like, the stakes aren't high enough? Or Because I, I think it it is a small movie in that it is so intimate in scope, but it also speaks to, like, fundamental issues of belonging and growing up and identity and disability. Here's the thing. Likely, at some point, we will all be part of the disability community. Very true. Very true. In some form, right? And so it's this sort of, I don't know, thing, the issue or experience that is not talked about or not given an artistic platform nearly enough. I don't know. I'm troubled by this criticism. 
excited, Coda haters. I'm again. I'm just filling in the blanks, but I think it's just like it's not really an auteur's film. It's like Spencer, right? The Princess Diana thing. That is like a weird ass film. <laughs> That's the only way I could describe it. And this is not that. It just feels right. like a. It's a really important story and a really good story, but I just when you watch all your Oscar films, if you want to do that, if you want to watch ten films, um, whatever they are, most of them are going to just be a certain way that's not this. And I, Sure, I, it's going to be your Slumdog Millionaire. I know that was like 10 years ago, but... I feel like that's an outlier too, because that one was largely positive story as well, right? Like it wasn't... But the circumstances, The though. circumstances weren't. So that's not what I necessarily mean, but like... Okay. In the end, a boy wins this money, or I forget what happens. Um, but that was criticized for similar things as Coda is. Like, power. did you see Power of the Dog? I have not. I'm so sorry. No, that's totally fine. I haven't seen it either. But everyone who has seen it has, in, in my life, who I trust, has been like, I could see you really loving this movie. I could see you really hating this movie. But it's like sweeping landscapes. A lot of scenes where they don't talk, you know. Gotcha. Can I read the titles of the best pictures from the last seven or eight years? Sure. So Argo, 12 Years a Slave. Birdman, Spotlight, Moonlight, The Shape of Water, Green Book, and Parasite. That's actually like a varied kind of list of films. Yeah, I I guess I can see how many of those, even if the focal point was a small story or still, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I'm flummoxed. I just feel like the feel-good story rarely is the one that wins. This and King Richard of the 10 nominees kind of are in that same niche of like feel good stories. Yeah. Another thing, again, we might have mentioned this off air or on air at some point, but they've also really tried to widen and change the demographic of voters specifically for Best Picture. So we might see what I'm saying change as well. You know, everyone says that for many, many years, and I'm sure it's true, that Mm -hmm. the majority of the voters for most categories, and specifically Best Picture, were old, really old, and I'm not just old, but really old white dudes, <laughs> you know. I mean, they are in charge of most things. <laughs> so uh, the Academy has made an effort to change that demographic, so we'll see. Uh, by the time this episode's released, we'll know. Regardless, it doesn't. Ch- it's not going to change my opinion on this film if it wins right. an Oscar or not. Another thing that it was up against, and I guess this is originally why I brought up the Apple TV thing, is that I still don't think a lot of people have seen this movie. Um, And Ryan kind of echoed a very popular sentiment that it's like, am I going to buy this whole other service, which might be my fifth or sixth service for one movie that people are talking about? And I get that too. I I totally understand. Especially if you've already exhausted your seven day trial. Very true. So if you haven't, if you have the seven days, watch Coda. (laughs) It's fortunate that Apple is backing it so hard. But it's also kind of unfortunate. And I really wonder, is this the kind of movie that people would have gone to the theater to see? It got a Mm. virtual screening at Sundance. It didn't even get like an in-person screening because uh, obviously due to COVID-19. Something we talk about a lot here, uh, the movies that kind of, for better or worse, maybe their release was different because of the pandemic. Now, there's, there's another theory that Coda is actually a better movie for pandemic times, if you will, because 
again, I'll t- take Power of the Dog, which is again supposed to have sweeping landscapes and quietness. That's more like you're in the theater, you're isolated, you're watching the movie kind of thing. I think Coda would be great in a theater, but I think it translates very well to the living room too. I agree. Definitely. A lot of words for me so far, so I apologize. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we mentioned three nominations. It's a uh, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor, Troy Coster. Uh, we'll get into uh, the actors in a moment. But um, the Adapted Screenplay part, this was, as uh, Ryan mentioned in the interview, a French film originally. I have not seen the French version. Have you, Iceland? Neither have I. No, I would like to, but I didn't realize that until more recently. I I think as I double-checked something on Wikipedia last week in preparation, that's where I learned that. So I'm definitely going to seek out that movie, but I have not yet. I do not speak French, so I'll try to say the title. La Famille Bellier. That film, France, it was nominated for... Their Caesar Awards, which are like our Oscars. The only person who won was the young woman in who played the lead in that film. They have an award that we don't have that a lot of people have said we should have, which is mm. like a like a version of like a breakout star award. Yeah. It sounds like a fun category, and I saw that and I'm like, we need that. <laughs> I know very little about that movie. Apparently the setting was changed. Sure. Obviously the United States, but there it's uh, more of a rural setting. And here it's, I don't know if you would consider that as rural. It's a fishing town, so it's not a farm. No, not a farm, but but more of like a, a blue collar kind of industry versus rural. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Like a working class town there. The cast, though, I really, really want to talk about. Let's do it. Did you read that fact, though, that the film's backers originally were not in favor of the all-deaf cast? Oh, I mean, I did not read that, but I'm sure, I'm confident, right? Because just like a lot of the issues that Ryan brought up, it has been acceptable to use hearing actors to play deaf roles more recently than it has been acceptable with other kind of identities and representation discussions. Yeah, and uh, Sean Hedder, the director, she was not about that. She was like, "No, we're gonna if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this right." Amen. She also adapted the screenplay. I mean, on top of everything, written and directed by a woman here, also cool to see. Absolutely. I hadn't known her from. I was looking at her IMDb. Uh, mm-hmm. No. Oh yeah, she. I. I was like, there was one thing I didn't know her from, and I couldn't remember what it was, but uh, she had a film with a. Allison Janney and Elliot Page, Tallulah. It was on Netflix. Did you see that one? Oh, gosh. You know, I did. I did, but I was multitasking. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it, was a, it was a while ago, too, uh, 2016, which yeah, okay. doesn't sound like a while ago, but it, it is, people. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly it is. She was also a writer on Orange is the New Black. Yeah, I'd really love to see her win that uh, Oscar for Adapted Screenplay. Yeah. Picked up some of those at the other award shows when i said that it sounded like i had disdain for the other award shows i do not <laughs> the sag awards are wonderful wonderful awards the writers guild awards are wonderful awards uh, i don't want anyone to imply that i'm like an oscar snob i am no. definitely not an oscar snob it, it's a fun it's a fun season of recognition there you go as soon as she got the assignment if you will 
first person she thought of is the first person you would probably think of to cast in this film, Islin. You already mentioned you're a big fan, Marley Matlin. And first person she approached, Marley Matlin was super excited to be in the movie. And one of the reasons was, and you could probably speak more to this, she felt like it was against the type that she usually played. Absolutely. And and I think, well... I want to say performance wise, I think she did an amazing job. I think particularly the, like the parents as a team, Mm -hmm. but Marley, of course, I think she did a great job in this role and she does stand out a little bit and in part, I think because I am such a fan of her, but she looked, I don't know. She's sort of against the rest of the family. She stood out, right? I mean, she is a strikingly gorgeous woman and I believe that she is stunning and that she's in love with this fisherman and that, you know, they've chosen this difficult but rewarding life together. So, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that Marley also saw, you know, something important about this role and this film. And I bet that helped a lot with funding and additional casting. Definitely. I don't think the movie gets made. I mean, just assuming, but like the movie doesn't get made. Uh, without her being involved. Such a, again, seasoned Hollywood hand. Um, Especially when you're going to... When I say take a chance, I don't mean on the actor's talent, but take a chance in terms of like the funding thing of saying, you know, we're going to cast deaf actors here. Right. You have someone who's proven it. Where did you first see her act? Do you remember? Oh, my goodness. Um, Yes. Oh, gosh. It was a television show with Mark Harmon, and sort of famously, they, they did not get along well. Oh. Mark Harmon had a hard time with sign language, but it was, I don't know if she was also a cop, but it was like a procedural. Interesting. In like late 80s, early 90s. And then again, I think in part because of the preschool program I went to and things, I know that my mom showed me Children of a Lesser God sooner I was, I was probably too young. I don't think we watched the whole thing. I think she just showed me pieces of it. And we also had a VHS of like Oscar moments. Oh, cool. <laughs> from the, you know, I don't know, probably 70s and 80s or something. And so I had seen her speech as a child. Like I don't, I didn't watch it that night. I don't know. I, I don't know the year off the top of my head, but we had a VHS that showed it. And so I would, I don't know. She was just a household name That's in my cool. household. And then certainly West Wing, you know, she sort of came back around in that. I She had a, an arc on the L word that I watched. And then most recently, there was a show called Switched at Birth that she was in. I think she may have been a producer on it. I could be lying there. That's also where one of the other actors in the film I'd first seen was in Switched at Birth. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Sometimes I'll put sitcoms on in the background and just do my editing or whatever. And a couple months ago, I realized the first time I must have seen her as a child, I didn't know it was her, was uh, she she guest starred on Spin City once. Oh, I thought you were going to say Seinfeld. Seinfeld. And then I was going to say subsequently, I'm like, oh, okay. She was also in Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. It just must not have clicked with me. And I definitely saw the Seinfeld thing before the Spin City thing. But I distinctly remember watching the the spin city episode with her and being like is that lady actually deaf like wow Mm. that's interesting like as a child absolutely and not realizing it was her later like you know west wing and stuff like that and then only recently i realized it was marley matlin like ryan said 
there have been one-offs, right? One episode of, I remember a different world had a deaf theater group. One episode of Seinfeld has a deaf character. You know, there's a concept that would be brought in for a story purpose in an isolated place, but not, not really a fully developed character or not. I mean, I'm not saying always, but just kind of typically in these examples that some of these examples we're giving, I'll give West Wing a different, you know, I think that's different. I think that was a, a character who happened to be deaf versus an episode with a deaf character. And that's something that Marley Matlin has done. You're absolutely right. Like, yeah, she has played the roles as, like you said, the one-off deaf character. But there are so many other roles where she's just a character. And I think it was regular Law & Order, SVU. Oh my gosh, yes. You're right. She had a recurring role and um, a really interesting relationship with that one guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Law & Order. Richard Belzer? Is that his name? Munch? Munch, yes, Munch. Right? That had nothing to do with her deafness, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. About something completely different. That That was about euthanasia and, and chronic illness independent of of anything having to do with her deafness super cool to see her here i was disappointed she wasn't nominated again i really do believe that if the nominations happened at a different time more in the time we're in now i suppose where the film has gained a little bit more attraction mm-hmm. that we would have gotten more characters or sorry more actors nominated here yeah i agree i i would also say in terms of the part I think the part of the dad is a meatier part. Yeah. You know, and I think because of the connection with the fishing business in particular, like we see more of him, we see more complexities in his relationship with his children. And so I understand from a character perspective that, you know, his might be a performance that would be more easily pulled out to be nominated and i think he was amazing in this role yeah troy coster is the one uh one of the cast who garnered that nomination and he is a favorite to win like i said we'll see but um he's amazing in this film phenomenal now when the director spoke to marley matlin marley matlin had some suggestions of who to cast and uh who to audition and she'd worked with troy coster before were you familiar with him at all? I wasn't. And and I'm, you know, I'm sorry because he is such a fantastic actor. I got the feeling, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, that he's done a lot of stage work. Yeah, so all uh, the three uh, deaf family members were in a performance of Spring Awakening together. Yes, which, again, I didn't get to see, but I can promise you that I YouTubed every possible clip I could because in years prior, when Spring Awakening had its first, you know, round of Tony nominations and things, I was excited. I did get to see it on Broadway once in the, I would say, like, original uh, run. And then this reimagining of it with deaf and hearing cast and everyone signing. I mean, that was just like, oh, my gosh, you're taking something I love, which is Spring Awakening. And something that's been peripheral, but has popped up and has been peripherally in my life off and on forever. And like putting those things together. 
blew my mind. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, it's certainly something that uh, is important to you. Yes. And yeah, the representation there was was huge, right? Again, there have been, of course, there have always been deaf actors. And of course, there have, you know, there have been stories that involved deaf characters, but to take something and adapt it in a way so that we can, you know, highlight these amazing deaf actors on a literal stage that where it might not always be easy to get a job or just even thinking about like the Marley Matlin of it all, how many actresses are there out there, right? There are probably a lot more. We only know Marley, you know? So to have more opportunities to have more people able to do the thing that they love, do the craft that they practice, and tell more stories. I'm all for it. There's something that I wanted to touch on when it came to that. And randomly, I was just YouTubing old Dick Cavett show episodes. And Dick Cavett used to do a lot of these cool interviews. And he doesn't always come off that great because he's, again, a white man of privilege in the 70s, you know. But at least he was asking the questions. <laughs> and he had James Earl Jones on. And it was a really, really great interview. But something that came up was that uh, Anthony Quinn, who, um, if you're not familiar with old time Hollywood, is not black, um, was at the time adapting a story about a um, one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution. I can't remember which one. And there was some uproar. At the time, there certainly would be uproar today if that was the case, but um, this was the 70s and there was uproar at the time, you know, should he be allowed to play that role? And James Earl Jones was, was speaking about it, but one of the things that Anthony Quinn was arguing is that he said this thing that I've heard a lot, actually, that he wouldn't even dream of playing it, but he felt the most qualified and that there was not a black actor out there who could do justice to the part, which uh, seeing your face here, that's ridiculous, right? But this is something that um, I've heard people in the trans community complain about. Complain sounds bad because complain sounds negative, but yeah. sp spoken up about. Um, and then again, the, the rebuttal, even as soon as a couple of years ago was just like, oh, but this is a tremendous actor and he or she are best qualified for that. Right. But Eddie Ramey is so good. Allow <laughs> him to play a historical transfigure. Exactly. Exactly. For example, I'm verbalizing the argument, not advocating it for yeah. it myself. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, and also Jared Leto won um, oh. playing a trans character. Our but again, that's just one example. We saw West Side Story come out this year with a lot more Latin representation than the original. You know, of course, Rita Moreno's in the original, and she, a great moment when she wins the Academy Award, but they darkened her skin on set, even though she is a Latin right. person. And again, the justification back then, if you look it up, is like, oh, there's just not enough Latin actors out there doing this. And that that is almost always proven to be so wrong that if you right. just look... And, and provide the opportunities, yes. right? Because we are not going to recreate the representation wheel here, right? This is, this is a conversation that is ongoing mm -hmm. and smarter people than I have, have articulated it, you know, but like, of course, if there's no one on screen, then fewer kids going to the movies are going to look up and see themselves reflected. And so it, it could, you know, uh, the best actor in the world 
in quotes, might not ever think that they had an opportunity and so would not pursue it and would not move forward and this and that. And, you know, I, I know from reading her book <laughs> that Marley Matlin had a chance meeting with Henry Winkler early on in her life Ooh. when she was, you know, in, in school and, and was, you know, part of a performance sort of thing. And, and he had really helped champion her and is, I think, godfather to some of her children, things like that, but was really helpful and, and really encouraging and things where maybe, you know, her family couldn't see what the opportunities were because there was no one. If you don't know a door is there, of course, it's not going to be open. And so, yeah, it's, it's so important to try harder than to just say, well, I don't know an actor that fits that description. Because you're right, there, there are people out there and there are talented people everywhere. And we need to continue to diversify the stories we're telling so that we can understand the world and each other better and that more people can have the opportunity to, you know, not only fulfill their dreams, but be in these roles so that the next generations can see themselves reflected back. Couldn't agree more. And uh, Ryan had also said something that I uh, really thought was cool. Like, let's not like have just these like token moments. Like, let's not stop at Coda, essentially. Right. And on a micro level, I hope we see Troy Coster again in a bunch of stuff because he was amazing in this film. And I'm not the one <laughs> to bestow the accolades, obviously, but Hollywood's already doing it. And I just can't, right. I hope it doesn't stop here. Right. I hope it paves the way for more substantive opportunities. Marley Matlin winning so young provided a great opportunity for her to have such an amazing career after that. And and to have the power to get past some of those tokenizing roles, right? Yes, yes. I think it is because of her and because of her kind of the sway that she had through some of the recognition and things like that, that some of these parts we've talked about were humans who happen to be deaf versus deaf one-off characters. And so similarly, perhaps Troy, the recognition that he has gotten through this award season will help people think more creatively <laughs> and provide more substantive opportunities beyond, oh man, that guy is, that deaf guy is funny. Let's put a funny deaf guy in this movie, right? Yeah, I'd like to, not taking a shot at Apple again, but I, I'd like <laughs> to see him in something that maybe a lot more viewers can see him in because I think America and the world needs to see everyone in this film, but specifically, again, I'd love to see him in, in something else. Yeah. Before we get to Amelia Jones, the brother, Daniel Durant, you had seen him, right? You said in, in Switched at Birth. Yes, he was a character in Switched at Birth and also was an actor in the, what is the word? at Revival. The revival of it's it's funny to say a revival because I think of that as like, you know, they bring Oklahoma back 30 years later. This was yeah. like a decade later, a revival, but the ASL revival of Spring Awakening. So again, I did not get to see it live. Oh, I would oh that I wish, but I watched a lot of YouTube clips and interviews and you know, people filming from their pockets or whatever they do on Broadway. <laughs> um, he was definitely a familiar face to me, and I think. This was a different role. And again, I think I would like to see, I, th I think I say this on other episodes too, like I would like to see the movie that is his life. 
You know? Oh yeah, like, that's I think he he brought so much to the character that even even though it was not as featured as maybe some other characters, I was definitely invested and intrigued and and wanted to know more. Yeah, uh, he was great as well. Didn't like to wear sleeves often in the film, but if I were him, I wouldn't either. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So uh, let's talk Amelia Jones. Um, some people even said that she should have been nominated for an Oscar. Now, if you look at this year's Oscar nominees in that category, they are, uh, you know, the cream of the crop in terms of the English language acting world, right? The Jessica Chastains, the Olivia Colmans, the Nicole Kidmans of the world. Hard group to crack. I, I get it. But I think Amelia Jones did an excellent job. Um it was interesting to hear, not Ryan's criticisms, but criticisms that he had heard, perhaps, that she wasn't actually a, a CODA herself. And, you know, it didn't even cross my mind of like, oh, CODA representation is kind of a thing, too. Yeah, and I, I I had wondered, I didn't know if she had that in her background or not, the piece. And I I almost asked Ryan this in our interview, but then I didn't want to derail us too far, so I didn't. But um that has been a line. So in this discussion of representation, I am aware of a couple of times where an actor who is a CODA has played a deaf character. Interesting. And I can, I can give one of the examples if you want, but I also don't have to. I mean, representation can get very complicated, Mm -hmm. right? In, in thinking about all kinds of identities, but, you know, in, in discussing, disability or lgbtq you know if a character is is in a transition where does the actor need to be to represent them you know what i'm you know what i mean like it, it's um i am all for more representation and i'm the first to say it's complicated and i don't know the answers to all the questions no so sure. a question has been someone who has grown up adjacent to the deaf community who has deaf folks in their family but is hearing can they play a deaf person and so it was interesting to hear from ryan criticism that a, a hearing person who has that relationship to the deaf community should only play a coda i i had wondered but i didn't i didn't know that so it, i agree that was interesting to hear yeah it was definitely interesting to hear um maybe some people will recognize her from netflix's lock and key i do appreciate at least, again, from my perspective, which is probably is not the right perspective, that, you know, Ryan mentioned that she did uh, study uh, signing and it wasn't kind of, you know, a half-assed jump into this thing. She really immersed herself in this. And again, from my perspective, who's someone who does not know sign language, mm-hmm. it felt like to me that she really was connecting with her family on screen, right? Like they felt like a real family, so... Yeah, it it felt natural. And I think also the way that it shifted when she was maybe just with her parents versus when she was with her parents and other people Mm. and how how her style of communication shifted depending on the circumstance. Um, I thought that was an important thing to show. Yeah, I mean, I, I I believed her. I think some would argue that is an important piece of it. And, and I don't know if this is part of the discussion as well. Okay, so this person was not, you know, did not grow up with deaf parents. And it sounds like there were a number of um, coaches and, and folks around that were paid to help inform the film. So is that also a piece of it of like, okay, we did not hire a person with, with that 
identity or, or those pieces, but we hired other people to coach them. And I'm not, I'm not saying that does justify it. I'm sort of just really asking, putting it out there of like, but we have compensated other people with that experience. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. Like, is that, is that part of doing it justice or respecting the community and the culture? Cause we're Cause deaf culture is its own culture, just like ASL is its own language. I think again, for my unqualified seat, it's certainly better than not doing that. But mm -hmm. I was wondering, and he, uh, Ryan hadn't seen the movie, so weren't able to ask him, but I was wondering if there was some nuance in the language that perhaps maybe she wasn't nailing. Like, to me, she's nailing it because that's what I know, right? But sure. uh, like you said, uh, American Sign Language is its own language with its own nuances. Like if something's translated from Spanish, English is my first language. I understand Spanish completely. I can speak Spanish, but I don't speak the best Spanish. My Spanish is through an English lens. I'm thinking English first. Right. I'm assuming if I learn sign language, I might be the same way. But I know people who I know, in like my family, who Spanish is their first language, they'll get the nuances of a Spanish joke that I won't, despite understanding right. the, the language. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It does, yeah. And I would say similarly... It is not simply a one-to-one -one translation, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the that's a great way to put it. The structure of sign language is different than English. Um, sometimes you will see Ruby signing English when she's kind of directly sort of translating. And I think when she's in her audition and she begins to sign what she's singing, there I think you can start to see how, or that that is an example because... If you know the song, kind of the words are in your head already to mm. see that it's not it's not simply just signing each word like it is its own. It has its own phrasing. Also, there are like, you know, speaking of like you said, um, you know, a Spanish joke might not translate like there are there are deaf idioms, right, that when translated into English don't make sense or don't mean the same thing. Oh, I forgot my point, but I think you see her sort of sign English in quotes a little bit more when when there is a hearing person in the room and she's talking to her parents, you know, like it's, I don't know. Yeah. And I am also not an expert. Like I said, I believed the performance and I, I hope that the work that they all did behind the scenes to do justice to the concept is, you know, I don't want to say is enough or makes it okay. Because like we keep saying, like there should be more and I'm glad this exists. I'm glad that, you know, they put their best intentions forward and created this piece of art. Agreed. Agreed. From my perspective. Yeah. Like to, to step through the weeds. <laughs> I think Amelia Jones did an excellent job. A couple of the people I just wanted to mention quickly. Uh, Eugenio Derbez played the teacher, Mr. V. I thought, I thought he did a great job. I, I liked his energy that he brought to this role. He's someone who, um, I know, very famous in Spanish language things, but has been appearing in American stuff. And mm. a lot of it is, I don't want to say bit parts, but not like Oscar-nominated films, but I like to see someone who's working like this and then finally like gets a role that they could really sink their teeth into. Yeah. When I first saw it, I'm like, where have I seen this guy? And he was in a really dumb uh, Adam Sandler film. Oh, uh, that was on Jack and Jill. There was another thing oh. I had seen him in. 
that was really not good as well. Everybody's got to pay their bills. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's not me. By the way, it's not me criticizing him. No, I, I know you. I know you weren't. That was that was my <laughs> that was my reaction to Jack and Jill. I was I was trying to take a step back from. Yeah, I thought what a great character, and I think you're right. He brought so much life to it and had some parallels, right? I think that's part of how he sort of connected with Ruby and her family, whether it's around a language barrier or feeling out of place or being told you're out of place or that kind of thing. I think he did such a, such a fantastic job and it was a, it was a great role that was, I mean, we, we talk about tropes of teen films, of course, and like inspirational teacher, is one and like you should try out for this really prestigious program i'll help you like that's pretty tropey and i didn't mind it so much because i thought they did it so well yeah something like a broken record when i say this on this podcast but like tropes exist and you do it good less people are going to complain about them i I don't mind a well-done trope If I hated tropes, I wouldn't be talking teen films all the time. (laughs) What I liked, too, is that he was strict, but not mean. You know what I mean? Like, he was... Yeah. He was not always nice, but he was always kind. Yeah, yeah. And there was reasons behind his... Like, he believed in her so much. It was nice to see. And I like, again, that they always have to have, like, the moment of doubt or the moment of just, you know, argument with the teacher that's going to happen. And and in this film, it was... He had compassion and understood her unique situation, but her being on time and, and that all aspect of it was super important to her. I think her getting to the level of dedication that he knew that it would take for her to get into that school and be successful. Like it just right. wasn't, it wasn't a power trip, I guess is what I'm trying to say from his angle. So again, I, I, I just wanted to shout him out too for Absolutely. being awesome. The two other people who really get speaking lines... Now there's like the people at the, the other fishermen and stuff, but uh, is the, the boyfriend, if you will, the love interest, the love interest, yeah, for Dia Walsh Pilo is his name, interesting name, Irish guy. He's been in a couple things. He was on that uh, History Channel show Vikings. He was in the film Sing Street. So ah, uh, okay, you know maybe we'll cover on High School Slumber Party at some point. So. He, he's got a lot of experience and then uh, her best friend and I, I'm sorry again I know it's a trope but I do love this kind of new trope that we have of I'll just say the horny best friend this yeah. is this is happening a lot not going to complain but uh, Amy Forsyth played uh, that character her name was Gertie of course how could I forget Gertie uh, she ends up you know dating the brother mm-hmm. so I th- thought that was fun um but yeah, I mean, the cast won the ensemble award at SAG, which again, I wish. The what an had appropriate, that right? Like, right? yeah. As an ensemble, this this movie would not have worked if we didn't believe their relationships with one another. Well said, well said, and I was happy to see that that they got that recognition there. So uh, yeah, that's the cast, and let let's talk about the movie. We've already touched on a lot of things, but what were some scenes that you liked? Maybe scenes that you didn't like um i mean so certainly i think the the two that stand out in my not memory of it but like i I rewatched it yesterday to talk about it today uh, two two scenes that were striking to me were both the performances like choir performances or singing performances so 
in the the scene of the choir concert when her family's in the audience and when this perspective shifts and they take the sound out and so you are observing the audience along with her family i think the way they did that was really smart and and striking even though even though i have known as an audience member through this film that the parents are deaf and and cannot hear her sing to make that shift for the audience you know really did kind of take my breath away of like allowing us to understand their perspective a little bit more fully and and we had seen the parents observing the audience but then as us as the audience that's kind of all we have to guide us for those moments i thought that was really effective yeah and then of course again because i have a love for signing and music together when um she's in her audition and and I'm, I'm interested how you how you perceived this moment um for me i sort of thought okay this audition is not going well right she starts off and she's timid and and mr v makes a mistake so that they can start over and which by the way i didn't catch the first time i thought he actually made a mistake oh really oh funny because okay. remember when i watched these i'm like doing other that's things true you're doing other stuff and then i was like oh Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So then, you know, she's, this is her her truly her last chance. And like, yeah, let's, let's be fair. Like the guy, the audition person pointed out, she does not have a strong background in music. This is new to her. But from my perspective, she stops singing for the auditioners and starts singing for her family and then begins to sign for them the song, which then makes her singing performance better because it's more you know true to her i mean gosh that just that'll give you the goosebumps right because she's bringing them into it in a way that she hadn't earlier in the film and it's also demonstrating to the the berkeley people that she has like literally something to say and a perspective and so it you know it ends up being a triumphant moment but what i loved about it was that regardless of getting into Berkeley or not, she found a way to perform that for her family. Yeah, and it's it's a beautiful, beautiful through line throughout. When uh, Mr. V, when she first auditions for the choir, I guess it's not an audition, it's just, you know, she joins the choir and he's trying to um, see where everyone's vocal range is and she, you know, she has a moment where she runs away. He's talking to her at one point and he, and he says something along the lines of like, it's not so much how you sing it's you know do you have something to say i love that i love that and as we see her kind of gain not just confidence in the craft but as we build to the moment first with the concert as you said and when we're seeing her parents kind of trying to see what the fuss is about uh, marley matlin's yeah, character they, they want to support her yeah marley matlin's character she's interesting because there are times in the movie where She'll even confess that, like, at one point she says, oh, of course you want to sing. If I was blind, you would want to paint, right? She confesses that she's not perfect in everything. She also mentions, uh, I guess when they're kind of getting to a fight, Ruby says, like, did you ever wish I wasn't, uh, that I was deaf? And she tells that story about, like, yes, you know, when you were born, I did wish that because I wanted us to be close. I'm not close to my mother. I'm assuming... Um, her mother was hearing 
Right, because at some point she says, let's call your grandmother. Mm -hmm. Yes. I thought that was such like an honest moment. They just felt like both real parents, that they were supportive, but they also had their limitations of, I guess, understanding. Like, And it wasn't one of these movies where they're depicted as the perfect parent. Right, they're very human. Mm-hmm. Very human, very human. A little background on like my viewing experience this time, uh, my wife came home from work and I was watching Coda and she caught it maybe, had not seen it, was not very familiar with it. I had talked about it here or there, but started sitting down and caught it from right before the performance at the school through the end. And she was as emotional as I was through it. And that just goes to your point, Aislinn. The the beginning's great. The whole movie's great. But the journey from there to the Berkeley audition, Mm -hmm. that sums up everything about the film. Like, the parents wanted to be there and supporting and and doing a good job. And they could have honestly, it wouldn't have been as good as a movie, but they could have ended at that high school. Yeah, the high school concert. Sorry. A lot of movies could end there that like, oh. You know, well, Berkeley offered you the scholarship and maybe we don't see that other thing. Whatever. I'm just inventing another thing. And that the parents, like, make an effort. and we, Oh, we saw the crowd support you. We kind of understand this. But um, it goes from there to that beautiful moment she has with her father where he's like, what was that song about? I saw a lot of mm-hmm. people were liking it. And she, he has a, her, his hand on her throat while she's singing and, and, you know, really looking at her lips. And again, it's just such a beautiful moment. To then wake up in the morning, you know what we're doing? We're going to that edition. We're, we're supporting you. Throw some roadblocks in there because it's a movie, right? And you're absolutely right. Like, how the audition builds and the just the passion we feel from when she can finally connect to her family. That you're right. It's not about her getting into the school or not. She gets in and it's great, but... It just feels like such a triumphant moment there that oh, I cried. I cried both yeah. times. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to cry the second time because I, had, <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. But, oh, yeah, it was great. And I guess I guess I'll segue here too quickly. Yes, we have a love interest. Yes, we get c- right. scenes with him. But I'm happy that it's not the main storyline, right? It just kind Very of ha- happens to be there. And I loved, this is maybe going to sound shitty if you haven't seen the movie. I loved how... She walks into the audition, runs into him. It's like, oh, how'd it go? And he's like... He said, I choked. I choked. Exactly. I choked. He's not like bitter about it. Right. He's, yeah, he's he's crestfallen, but he's doesn't blame her or yeah, doesn't turn it into something else. How many movies have we seen like that, you know? <laughs> totally. And he doesn't end up getting in and she does. And I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I did too. And, and that goes to show you as well. Now, this isn't universally true. But in everything, including arts, uh, there's a certain pedigree and teaching you can you can have and get. But sometimes you can be rewarded for just having a little bit of soul, for lack of a better word, right? Like it, mm. it, it, if you mean something in your craft, like perfection isn't always going to be the answer to the solution. It's like heart really counts for a lot, too. We are human beings still. Right. I'll be honest. I did think about that. I was never a music major, but my freshman year of college, I lived in a dorm and I lived in a room with an opera major, but I Ooh. lived in a, in a dorm where there were a lot of music majors. And yeah, like she's going to have some catching up to do as it relates to just, I don't know, does she read music? Like things like that. Like she might, you know, in my version 
she spends the summer with Mr. V doing some kind of remedial catch up <laughs> so that she can, you know, has some of those foundations so that she can approach the subject at a college level. You know, that I don't know how realistic that is to have no background in music and then, you know, get a scholarship to Berkeley um, School of Music. So in my mind, I sort of fixed that with some additional tutoring. Which makes sense. But yeah, I like that, you know, the love interest of it all, really the only thing that's relevant is that that's what got her in the door to the choir room. You know, but for kind of our purposes as the viewer, it wasn't about their romance. It was about her then finding that a way to be true to her passions and connect back with her family. Love that, because if you want to talk tropes, it's sometimes we see the story driven by the romance, and that definitely was not the case here. And that's okay if that's what the movie is about. Like, yeah, I, for I sure. don't mean to say that can never happen, but I thought the balance of this was really smart yeah i mean i would say you know family is definitely more important here than than romance right like she does visit me truly kind of the biggest sort of piece we have with that love interest miles early on is you know they're practicing at her house and overhear her parents having sex which leads to a very comical scene between the four of them which (laughs) derails the romance of course because he tells people about it Again, that wasn't so much about them as it was an opportunity, again, for great acting from, <laughs> you know, Marley and Troy. So it, I don't know. I, I liked that this teenage boy was really just a catalyst for other things in the movie. Yeah, which it works here. So we're talking a lot about music. You love theater, Island. You love Broadway. Not that this is a theater kind of movie, but did you like the music here? Yeah, so it's an interesting sort of thing. So what was, the minute you say it, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, that was it. But what was the band? She picks up the vinyl and oh, she and Gertie. It's not the Strokes. No, but it, it, it's a name that sounds like that. Yeah. <laughs> I keep l- searching music coda, and obviously that's a thing in music, which. Oh, quite, God, quite... yeah, that's not going to get you the right place. But so there's a little bit of like that teen music snob kind of thing. Yes. You know, then the guy notices the final and it's a whole thing. But what I loved is that she was playing it on a Fisher Price um, record player (laughs) that of course, and then she mentions, yeah, my mom thought it was a waste of money. Right. Because again, it back to this sort of thing of, of her parents are going to have a different perspective and, and she's going to have a different perspective kind of from her, from our family in that way. I thought, the first time I watched it, I sort of like, oh, okay, Joni Mitchell. Like, okay, I wasn't sure I recognized the talent and the cultural importance, but it's not a touchstone for me necessarily, personally. And then in the second watching of it, I really felt like, what a great audition. I don't know. I felt like it really fit much better. I wondered why in choir that year, they were focused so much on the 70s. Yeah, it was interesting, right? Maybe that was the theme, like a, a night in the yeah, 70s. That was Mr. V's theme was, was <laughs> the 70s. Yeah, what, what did you think of the of the way music was woven throughout this? I'm with you. Like, I guess I paid a little bit more attention on that second watch. What's the Joni Mitchell song? Uh, both sides now. It also made me think that, like, I guess another thing, maybe some of the haters could be like, oh, is that, like, song too on the nose for 
what's happening here. But look, but she's a teenager. Like maybe that's how she felt. You know what I mean? Like on the nose is okay. Also, it's a sad, sad, dark world out there. We, we've gone through a lot. Can you give me this, people? Can I just get emotional at, at, a, at a movie that makes me feel good? I'm sorry, people. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought the... I'm not an expert in, like, high school and college acapella stuff, but whenever I hear it, it's, it's pleasant to me. So, yeah. you know, I liked it. And also, it, it definitely felt like... I know it was 70s stuff, but when I was in school... The choir would do a lot of 70s stuff, you know. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, that, that was pretty popular uh, for, for whatever reason. Then, they, you know, they would dive into like, oh, let's do the, the modern hit to get the kids into <laughs> it. But, I mean, to be fair, it is a great era for like kind of ensemble singing. So, so it does make sense. So another thing I want to talk about that really struck me here was mm-hmm. uh, something that Ryan mentioned as well. And it is how much they depend in this film on their daughter for translating aspects. Yeah. Yeah, they they used her as an interpreter. For me, it reminded me of... My mother used to tell me all the time, usually when I was being fussy about something growing up, she's like, oh, (laughs) you know, you don't know the meaning of patience. My parents, because they only spoke Spanish and I spoke English and Spanish, would drag me to hours upon hours at doctor's appointments. I was the oldest in my family... And the only one in the, this is coming from my mom, um, the only one yeah. in the extended family who knew English. So she'd have, she'd be loaned out to aunts and uncles to go to doctor's appointments, older relatives in the neighborhood to go to doctor's appointments. And she's like, it you know, it was a waste of my, not a waste, but you know, in her interpretation, like she's, she's a young person, you know. Right. She had other things she wanted to be doing. Yeah. So it reminded me of those stories from my mother and maybe again, like maybe times have changed that that's not the case anymore. But it's a tough position to be put in. One of my favorite regions of the country to visit is New England. I love these New England harbor towns. I loved seeing that here in the film, uh, Gloucester specifically, the name of the town here. And I loved seeing that fishing culture. I'm not a fisherman. I don't know if it's true to life, but yeah. that's the side plot in this film. The fact that the, you know it's a struggling family fishing business and they're kind of you know, trying to get by and they're throwing a lot of obstacles. Again, we, I'm sure if we watched a different film, it would be anti-fishing and why these government sure, yeah. observers are good. Like, I'm not trying to get into that today. But like when the, um, what was she, uh, inspector had to go on the boat mm-hmm. and um, Ruby gone to the fight and she wasn't there for her family that day. Just going back to that, just I couldn't, can't only imagine the pressure that she must have felt like Literally, like, do I abandon my family to, to pursue my passion or just to even right. be a kid? Because look what happens the one day that I leave them. Not that I had those big of a moments, but like mm-hmm. I think every teen or just in your, your process of growing up has an experience like that where they feel like they maybe do a selfish thing and then there's consequences like that, right? Like, does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the, the, the choice you make has those ripples that impact other people and that it was part of their family culture for her to play that role and that they so they all relied on her right like and and it worked in quotes for you know those however many years that it just became that was their role we did talk about it with ryan a little bit and that 
a few things have changed. So technology has has helped, right? I'm thinking about languages more broadly, but you know, there are translation apps. If you've seen any 90 day fiance, you've seen people <laughs> interact using a, a cell phone to translate something or to type back and forth. Um, Ryan mentioned, you know, if someone is asking his wife to interpret for him on the fly, she'll say, no, you, t- you know, you tell him yourself and, and they'll write back and forth. And, and Ryan and I have had conversations on campus where, you know, we've written back and forth on a cell phone when we needed to quickly get information passed back and forth. Um, and we had not planned ahead to have an interpreter there, that kind of thing. I think, you know, some expectations culturally have changed, some laws have changed, and hopefully like the prevalence of interpreters has changed so that, especially for something like doctor's appointments and things that should be private and that everyone deserves the privacy to, you know, those privileged conversations that a doctor's office, a hospital would, you know, would have, have that, whether it's ASL or Spanish or something else. And so, yeah, hopefully times have changed. My guess is that anecdotally, there's still a lot of kids, you know, taking on that responsibility and hopefully things will continue to, you know, opportunities for whether it's technology or interpreters will continue to grow. Again, that part was just so uh, fascinating to me. And again, the, just the struggle between supporting your family or supporting yourself. I could imagine that uh, this story played out positively, but there are many scenarios in the real world where parents do not understand what's going on here. It could be a stretch for a lot of people to be like, the family business might go under so that you can sing. You know what I mean? Like, right, so, sure, absolutely. There are different ways to look at it, for sure. So yeah, I, again, the, I think there might be like a darker indie version of this film where parents don't understand and maybe she does it anyway. Or maybe maybe like uh, Mickey and the Bear, she just stays in town and that's that, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> that could That could be. <laughs> But I'm happy where it ended because, again, I needed this in Me my too. life. <laughs> um, anything else that we didn't touch on in the film or anything else Man. you want to talk about? I mean, you know, there is a lot. And if folks, for whatever reason, just jumped to us, I would encourage them to go back and listen to the interview with Ryan. And if um, you have folks in your life that are part of the deaf or hard of hearing community, to please check out the transcript and or the um, video of the conversation. I think that was the that was the most fun for me was to talk to Ryan about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just uh, on the transcript, Iceland, thank you for volunteering yourself and um, being able to transcribe it. But definitely, um, if you're a um, listener out there and you want the transcript, um, Iceland, I assume, take all the time you need is my point, you know. <laughs> yes, I will. It will be in progress. And I have also committed to slowly but surely transcribing the AP episodes. I cannot commit to transcribing all 200, but <laughs> I will transcribe the AP episodes because in, in the course of us discussing having a guest and having a guest from uh, the deaf community, I'll be honest, I had neglected to think about transcripts prior to that. and that's an oversight, right? That is a hearing privilege oversight that we've made. And so 
I want our content to be as accessible as possible. So I'm going to start transcribing, you know, our current episodes and I will begin to do back episodes as well. But um, for High School Summer Ready AP, we will have transcripts. And I apologize for anyone who now has to read what I say. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, I, I do some light editing in the transcripts, <laughs> by the way, but um, <laughs> wonderful. All right. So, Brian, who was this movie made for? I was thinking about this. This is a good question. Maybe a cop-out answer, but I said everyone because it feels like such an inclusive movie. Did you have anything different? No, I agree. I think, you know, I, for instance, watched it yesterday with um, my parents. I think this would be, if I were in high school and this came out, I would also be excited. So certainly I am the demographic. But yeah, I think young people who are in a, you know, who are embarking on adulthood, as well as folks, general adults, would enjoy it. Go watch it, everyone. Did your parents enjoy the film? Yes, very much. My, I mean, I think I got my love for Marley Matlin from my mother. So, <laughs> um, yeah, she very much enjoyed it. And we have talked about it off and on all day. Great. I love hearing that. <laughs> um, is this based on YA? No, but it is based on the French film. So, uh, you know, it's that's why it's nominated for adapted screenplay. Did we have a dead teen or a dead parent? So I thought about like maybe maybe we shouldn't ask this question here because it just felt irrelevant. But if you were going to transcribe it, I figure we explain this question for first time listeners that like so many of these uh, modern teen films, specifically adaptations from uh, YA novels, but not just that, have a dead teen or parent as part of the main storyline. We get huge family dynamics here but none of it's about death which is refreshing uh at least uh and and like you say unique to the genre yes who is most likely to succeed who won the movie i mean ruby is the most obvious answer but like again maybe it's a cop out but i think the whole family like everyone seems to land in a good place right i agree and i think the whole community because it's a it's a little bit subtle but we see, you know, in the end, when we see kind of the the growing success of the co-op and the relationship between the family and, and their community, we see people learning how to communicate with one another. And that little bit of effort, you know, I don't think very many people would probably were fluent in sign necessarily, but they learned so that they could communicate with this family that is an important family in their community. And I think that's a great lesson that like yeah it's going to take a little effort it's going to take a little time and i think for us old adults it can be scary to try new things but but push through that and keep trying because what you get out of that is these important relationships and and this more inclusive and diverse community so i think everyone won yeah and that's fascinating too because it's like in that community they realize that like they're more specifically the dad um they're more like uh him than they're not like him yeah the family will talk throughout the movie about how isolated they feel in that community uh, i think marley Matten's character refers like she has at once seen like oh i don't want to mingle with those hearing bitches her words and yeah. uh her daughter ruby says like maybe it's because you're calling them hearing bitches so i'd like that in this film that it was it went both ways in a sense that like, yep. and again, you understand where the family was coming from, but 
everyone had to move to to a certain area to just I don't know find a little right. bit more harmony. So yeah, I absolutely. Agree. And and I and you see them you know enjoying themselves and also like you know again we've talked about Marley Matlin as this amazing gorgeous person. The character is this gorgeous vivacious woman. So like of course she would be helpful in like the front end selling things, right? She's got charisma. She's got charm. So to incorporate her into the business is smart. Yeah. She, I love I mean, it. Okay. She, everyone she, wins. <laughs> she was a beauty queen uh, in the movie. So that's what we learned. <laughs> um, okay. The Wooderson Award. What character would you have liked to seen more of? To have seen more of? This this was also tough for me because like I thought they, they balanced everyone really well. I don't know. Uh, did you have an answer for this one? I said the brother. Okay. You know, we get we get our sense of him is certainly sort of through Ruby a little bit. And, you know, that it's in the trailer um, as well as the movie. But, you know, they ask her to. The, the mom um, has her turn the music off the phone, you know, when it's dinner time or, or something of like that's, you know, not at the dinner table. And she's like, but we can have Tinder at the dinner table? And, <laughs> and the mom says, yes, because we can all participate. <laughs> So we know that the brother is finding independence and finding adulthood in a different way than Ruby is. And some of that includes, you know, his social life, his extracurricular curriculars. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I would just, I said it earlier, I would love to see kind of a movie of, from his perspective, or if this were a series, I would be interested in kind of what he, cause it seems like he's going to take over the business. It seems like he's getting more invested in the community. So I would say the brother. This just reminds me to ask that question. We know Ruby's in high school, obviously. We see her at times struggle with the fact that she has to be on the fishing boats in the morning and then go to school, yeah. which I can only imagine how tough that is. But the brother ends up dating her friend. How old did you think the brother was? I thought he was like 20. I thought he was a little bit older. Yeah, a little bit old. I think he like seemed like he had just graduated one or two years or whatever. So Yeah. I was just curious what you thought on that. How about the Long Duck Dong Award? Any character whose omission might have made the film better? Another one that I really didn't have an answer for. It feels like such an inclusive movie. Um, I might have said the boyfriend if they put too much of him in the film. Not that he was bad at it again, but... No, I hear you. We do get a couple scenes of just like swimming at the old watering hole and bonding. and I feel like we've seen this scene a lot, even in films that you and I have covered. right? Yeah. Like, swimming around with the boy um but yeah i i don't really have a great answer though the film is less than two hours it didn't feel like it dragged at all so yeah i i don't i don't know how about you yeah i did not have an answer for that one then we move on right. uh, our extra credit assignment if you were going to recommend a classic teen movie to a character in this film to whom and what are you recommending also struggle a bit with this one, but I'm just going to go with the easy answer in my book, which is let's have Ruby watch Grease. It's a movie from the 70s. The songs aren't 70s-esque, obviously. They're supposed to be from a different era, but she sings so many 70s songs in the movie. I don't know. Teen musical. She could have watched High School Musical as well. That was another thing I was thinking of, but I don't know if that's as classic as Grease, so we'll say Grease. That's a great answer. I struggled with this, and... I don't know if it's a good answer, but here's what popped into my head. I would have her watch Juno. Juno, interesting. It's very different, but it also involves 
a young woman who is sort of a misfit, who has a best or a horny best friend. Yeah. <laughs> and just trying to navigate growing up and parents that had different expectations. I don't know. For whatever reason, I just thought maybe aspects of this would resonate for her. I think but she would I don't like know. it. Yeah, I think she yeah. would like it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. On a more serious note, it is time for us to give Coda our report card grade. So um, in the style of American high schools, we will um, grade this film on a scale of A plus to F. As reference, the Rotten Tomatoes critic score is 95%. The audience score 93%. And it has a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So what grade do you give Coda? Should be for Letterboxd people, but whatever. I agree. So I was teetering between A and A plus. And then I said to myself, Brian, you watched this movie just twice in your life. Both times, tears were streaming down your face in the end. Again, I wasn't bawling, but I felt emotionally connected to the film. So isn't that what a movie's supposed to do? I think so. I have to give it the A plus for that reason. So A plus for me. I love it. That sounds great. What about I, you? I agree with everything you say, and I'm going to give it a strong, solid A. There you go. I mean, good grades all around. Um, absolutely this this movie is on the honor roll for sure and that won't change for me like i said whether it wins an oscar or not but true i wouldn't mind the recognition so yeah i think i of the three i would really love it if it won adapted screenplay i haven't seen all the oscar best picture nominees so i'm not going to make a real assessment but i am biased teen films all the way so there it is <laughs> B- busy year for us here on high school slumber party kirsten dunst is nominated kristen stewart is nominated this film is nominated for things so Whew. it's all happening <laughs> okay so we are going to have our very own high school slumber party with coda themed sleeping bags so brian what would your coda sleeping bag look like really really easy for me i don't know what they're called but whatever those like things that the fishermen wear the rubber oh gators waiters waiters Waiters, gators gators. that sounds right i'm just i'm just gonna sleep yeah i'm gonna sleep in a big one of those and that's gonna be my sleeping bag i know it's not comfortable but oh my that is not gonna breathe but if you pee your pants you'll be fine true Um, so I went with a very specifically Coda theme and the outside would be a sort of pop art style with the I love you in oh. sign language hands. And then if you unzip it on the inside, that's where you get sort of the rolling ocean vibe. Beautiful. By the way, the, the teacher, I, I want to know what his wife did. Beautiful home. Oh, the gorgeous home. Yeah. Beautiful home. <laughs> I saw that that kitchen and I was like, hello, beachfront property and a kitchen like that. <laughs> I don't I don't know Massachusetts public school teachers' salaries. Um, but yeah, beautiful. Maybe, home. <laughs> maybe it's also an Airbnb. 
<laughs> oh, true. True. Yeah. I mean, he's a teacher. He could go somewhere for the summer and Airbnb it out. Good call. Yeah. Maybe he lives in the guest house. <laughs> Love it. Okay. We've got our sleeping bags. We are um, at our mythical blockbusters. It's rent to get one free. What two movies would you pick out to watch at the slumber party along with Coda? I'm going to cheat Island. I want you to go first because I have a list of a couple and I don't want to take any of yours. Oh, okay. That's very sweet of you. Um, speaking of cheating, I, again, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And one of my answers is going to be a mini festival of the Joey Lucas episodes of West Wing, which, oh. spoiler alert, I have created that festival for myself before and just <laughs> spent a weekend watching all the Joey Lucas episodes. So if you enjoyed our conversation, if you're interested in more of this kind of stuff, the West Wing Weekly podcast had Marley Matlin oh, on cool. and also had the actor who played her interpreter in, who I believe is a coda, and that's part of how he got that role. And so she talked about how important the words were in that show and how much she loved how it was written and all that kind of stuff. So um, Joey Lucas Film Festival. And then because I'm also a sucker for musical movies, I picked Pitch Perfect as the other one. Great. Love it. <laughs> now I'm so curious. What two movies would you add to Coda for our film festival slumber party? I'm going to do two actual separate ones, right? Two okay. triple features, if you will. Uh, it'll make sense in a second. I feel like we've mentioned uh, Marley Matlin so much in the Oscar, so much that we have to recommend Children of a Lesser God. And uh, Ryan mentioned another great movie about something similar here, and that's The Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal, yeah. So Children of a Lesser God, Sound of Metal, put those together uh, with Coda. And then I had another one which was uh, mentioned it earlier because of the actor who plays you know, the love interest was in Sing Street. So I would put Sing Street with a film that we talked about on our 2021 um, recap, if you will. Also about, well, this one's more about hearing loss throughout the film, and that is The Ultimate Playlist of Noise, you know, about a young man who's losing his hearing, so he decides to record all the noises he's going to miss. So, uh, yeah, wanted to just mention those in the episode as well so we can get them all up there on the Instagram and have, have a go I at it. I love it. and floors of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feather canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way but now they only block the sun they rain and snow clouds got in my way I've looked at clouds from both sides now from up and down and still somehow it 
don't know clouds at all. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed that conversation. Once again, if you just listened to part two, please listen to part one, watch part one, or Iceland, maybe even read the transcript of part one and two. Yes. <laughs> at some point. Yes, they will be. If they are not available now, they will be available shortly. I am working on it. Maybe while you're listening, I'm working on it. Um, who knows? But I, I am committed to transcribing the, the CODA episodes as well as working on our back catalog of AP episodes uh, because I think it's important that we have these available in multiple forms. And so I am working on it. And if you have other ideas about inclusivity and access and our podcast, please let us know. And if you're looking for uh, my personal feelings on the rest of the Oscar ceremony, I will answer those later. I'm not really going to talk about Will Smith. That's what your new Twitter is for. I could do it there, but uh, Kristen Stewart did not win. Kirsten Dunst did not win. Andrew Garfield did not win. So uh, there was a lot of former teen stars who did not win, but a teen film, a high school-aged story did win in CODA. So I'm happy for those of you who are curious <laughs> because I, I've been asked by a couple of people my feelings on Kiki Dunst not winning and Kristen uh. Stewart not winning. So uh, <laughs> you can hear that on the regular High School Slumber Party feed or again, on my personal, uh, on my personal Twitter, perhaps, oh my Rodriguez. And Aislinn, you have Twitter and Instagram as well. I do, at SassyNerdMT for Twitter and Aislinn.Ruth for Instagram. I'm mostly just looking at dog stuff these days, but I would absolutely entertain a conversation about Coda or other teen films because I enjoy them as well. That's why I'm here. And I appreciate it. And Aislinn, personally, I want to thank you for putting in all the hard work of transcribing and getting Ryan for part one. And this was an amazing adventure in CODA. And I, again, I can't wait for the next film that we end up covering. Agreed. It's over. Go home. Go.